You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that about 1.2 million American kids play high school football, and of those, only about 0.08% play pro football. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Which is a totally relevant cool fact of the day because today we have a former NFL star, Bo Eason, who happened to also become, get this, an acclaimed Broadway playwright and performer, a major international coach on how to really have a presence on stage and how to tell your story. And he's got 20,000 hours on stage crafting and presenting his own personal story. Uh, his play, called Runt of the Litter, has toured in over 50 cities and opened in New York. So this guy, I don't even know what, how, what's, what else to say about Bo, but like <laughs> he's like a pro athlete and like he's like a playwright, which are like opposite ends of the spectrum. And I've gotten to hang out with Bo several times, and he's, he's an amazing guy and really understands personal development as well as pro athlete, athletics, as well as just how to have a presence, which is really a difficult thing. And some people really benefit from that. So, Bo, I don't know what else to say about you other than welcome to the show, man. Well, that was a great introduction. I was, I was listening going, hmm, this, this dude sounds cool. I want to see this podcast. So, uh, <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, thanks for having me. And, you know, it's funny, Dave, that, that fact that you opened with. The uh, 0.08% of high school football players play in the NFL. This, I went to this tiny little farming community high school in, uh, up in Northern California called Delta High School. And where, where is that? That is outside of Sacramento, about 30 miles. I, I, I went to high school in Manteca, California. Oh, you did? I didn't know that. Yeah, so that's I, like I think I we might have played against those guys. All right, anyway, small world. Anyway, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Manteca. <laughs> I, I, you know, I know, you know, the whole Modesto, Manteca, that whole you know area, Stockton, Lodi. Wow, all over there. Yeah, so that's I grew up. I grew up like right between Stockton and Sacramento, right on the Delta. 
Okay, that's why Delta. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, uh, all right. I didn't so, even realize that we're from that same part of the world. Cool. Yeah. So I this little high school that I went to, Dave's called Delta High School. It had about 270 kids in the school, and you know that school has been in existence for close to 100 years, and never has there been a pro athlete from that school before I got there, and never has there been one since I left. But check this out. 27 little farm boys were on my team, 27 guys uh, that played on that team. Based on the statistic of 0.08% of all high school football players get to play pro football, how many of those 27 do you think played in the NFL? Uh, You would think, well, there's probably, probably your brother. Other than that, I don't know. So check this out. Four of us out of 27 played in the NFL for a total of 25 years. Uh, that's and my, Isn't that crazy? That's statistically really unlikely. Like what, what's it, picking up hay bales, um, smelling, <laughs> smelling the air in Manteca. Like, I, I don't know what the, what causes this? I know what's in the water there. Right. Um, I mean, that's what, that's what we've always been trying to figure out. And so we had a 30 year reunion of that team a couple of years ago. So I went back to this reunion and I saw all those guys who, who didn't play in the pros and I saw the guys who did play in the pros. And I asked them, why did you play pro football, given that no one has ever played from our school before we got there or since we left? And they all said, you know what it was, Bo? It was that stupid plan that you would carry around. <laughs> that 20-year plan that said I was going to play in the NFL – I would show it to them every day. And I was the littlest, you know, not, not the best player on the team. And I would show them this plan every day. And I would say, I'm going to be the best safety in the whole world. And so these other guys said, if that little shit Bo is going to play pro football, I am too. <laughs> and that's, that's the reason they gave me. So I always find that really peculiar. And it's very cool that when somebody decides that they're going to do something, then other people go, well, maybe that's a possibility for me too. And then they just decide to do it too. You know, th- that idea of having a 20-year plan, uh, I- I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, uh, but I don't remember how long ago, so I'll-, I'll say it again. When I was 16, I read Think and Grow Rich, the Napoleon Hill book, which is kind yeah. of the first book that that really scientifically looked at what do these like really powerful, influential people do uh, to get that way? And then came up with a set of entirely bizarre sounding practices, uh, some meditations and some other stuff. But one of the things that in that book is take a sheet of paper, write down in a very specific way your goal and read it every morning, put it on your mirror. And I did that when I was 16. I said, I'm going to make a million dollars by the time I'm 23. And it totally didn't work because I made six million dollars when I was 26. So <laughs> I, it was a total failure. So I, I mean, and, and the other thing I didn't say make and keep. Because uh, I lost it when I was 28. But hey, like, like you live <laughs> and you are, learn. Those are details. <laughs> so my advice, if you're at any age, but especially if you're a young person and like there's all sorts of weird stuff, your friends will probably make fun of you for doing it. Just tell your friends to go screw themselves if they're making fun of you. Just do your thing. Make your goal and read it every morning. I, I think there's really good science behind that. And you just got two guys who've done a couple of interesting things telling you the same thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I, it definitely works. That's why you better be careful on what you want, what you're praying for, what you're wishing yeah. for. And, and, you, and be careful of the language. You know, if you say you want to not do something, I'm sorry, your, your brain is stupid. It'll actually just hear the do something. So be positive in what you're asking for. You're going to get the opposite. All right. The other reason that that you're, you've done all this cool stuff, the other thing is you've had a ton of knee injuries and surgeries. I have two. I've had three knee surgeries. I have a screw in my right knee. That all happened before I was 23, mostly because I was fat and inflamed all the time. Uh, and I was trying to play soccer like that and thinking that jogging was going to make me you know, lose weight or something that didn't yeah. actually do that. Uh, so what did like pain, especially knee pain, but any kind of pain, do for you to make you more or less successful? Wow. Um, man, you know, I've had seven knee surgeries and, you know, multiple shoulder and fingers and, you know, a lot of, a lot of broken bones and things. I just, you know, it's not that I didn't feel the pain. I did. I mean, it hurt. It's not that NFL players don't feel it. It's just, you know, it just wasn't an option to miss out. Uh, you know, once I declared the dream, um, of being the best safety, 
uh, doctors kept telling me as I was having surgeries in high school and then in college and then in the pros, they kept saying, well, you can't play anymore. With each surgery, they said, that's it. You're done. We're <laughs> running out of parts from your body for which to you know, put this thing back together. And I just kept saying, no, I just, it's not really an option. I'm just going to keep going. Do you have parts from dead people in you? I don't. I, that was a big thing in the 80s when I was, when I was uh, having surgeries, but I, I, I avoided that cadaver uh, ligament. I, I did too. They were trying to get me to take one. I'm like, I, unless I knew the guy, I'm just not that comfortable with it. No, I know. It's just kind of <laughs> creepy to have a dead dude in your knee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> unless he's going to do you some really good, you know? Yeah. But who knows? Anyway, yeah, I didn't mean so, to take you off track, but I just figured yeah. you must have some artificial parts in there. But uh, go ahead. So, so what did this pain do for you or, or not do for you? I mean, you? it just, it, it just, you know, it really drove me and it, and it really, it taught, it taught me one thing that, you know, once you have this mindset, you know, that you want to win and you want to achieve a certain thing, the obstacles really don't matter. You know, pain, surgeries, all that kind of stuff. They just, they call it, they kind of fall by the wayside. Even I have kids now, and I know you have young kids um, and my son's playing, he's seven and he's playing sports. And a lot of times they mistake uh, being hurt with an injury. You know, like they, they, they don't know, it, it hurts a little bit, but they're okay to keep going. They just don't know they're okay. So we always, I'm always checking in to see, you know, can you keep going? Or is this a legitimate injury that we got to stop? It, it's funny. Uh, one of my uh, previous guests on Bulletproof Radio, uh, Reichardt, uh, who runs like Innovation USA, the, the TV show, he had to go get a trainer to teach him how much physical pain he was supposed to be able to take because you know, he's yeah. a c- computer geek like me. And unless you had some kind of sports training or what you experienced, knowing what the difference is between, well, I'm, I'm pushing really hard and, oh my God, I'm breaking myself, it's not a, it's a learned skill. And, and until yeah. you play with that line, and if you didn't get that as, you know, a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, you're not going to have it as a 30-year-old. So I, yeah. I, it's kind of cool. I, I think I always just injured myself because I never knew the line. I just kind of blindly walk over it uh, until maybe I wisened up. But that could have been because when I was really, really young, I didn't run into enough walls. And it, it, I mean, is that what you do with your kids? How, how do you, how do you teach them this skill? Um, I tell you what always happened to me, and this is what I try to impart on them. Say I'd get an injury, and a legitimate injury, yeah. right? Like a sprained ankle, the thing's swollen, and you can't go. And so the whole week of practice, I can't practice. And that thing's swollen, and we can't get the swelling out of it. So up comes you know Friday night or Saturday night, and it's game time. I don't know why this happens, but by some miraculous something – I can tape that thing up and I can go. I can play and I can play as good as I've ever played. Something just happened, and this always happened to me. Whether it was a broken collarbone or whatever, or separated shoulder, I would miraculously heal at the last second, be able to play the game, and and you know I'd still feel the pain like later, but somehow I'd get through it. And I always uh, challenge my kids to do the same, whether it's homework or whether it's uh, their training uh, regimen. I want them to push past that place where you, you can't go anymore, where you think you can't go. Because once the big game is scheduled or once the big test is, is here, I think whatever you want to call it, God or the universe starts working for you. When the game is scheduled and you know it can't be changed. So your body and the universe com- comes to your aid and somehow you're ready for it. Even though it looks like leading up to it, there's no way you can you can you know you can go through with this. You know, Stephen Kotler, uh, who's also been on the show and who's uh, the keynote speaker at the Bulletproof Conference coming up here, and I guess yeah. you're going to be you're going to be attending probably for a day at the conference, which is awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm stoked to hear that. Yeah, um, me too. In his book, uh, The Rise of Superman, he talks about that exact phenomenon, Bo, and he says that uh, I remember like a pro skater who's like like jumping over the Great Wall of China or something. Yeah totally wrecks his ankle, as in shattered, and ends up jumping the wall like six times with a shattered ankle that shouldn't have held his weight. But like when we get into some special state, a state that is learned and is reproducible, uh, that magic powers emerge, for lack of a better word. And, and these are intrinsic skills. They're just altered states that most people either experience randomly and remember fondly but don't, but don't know how to reaccess or something that maybe you learn how to do and so you end up structuring your life that way. Yeah. Uh, did you, 
do you write or like when you're doing a Broadway play or do you, did you play in a state of flow, do you think, or was it something else? Oh yeah. No doubt about it. When I read Stephen Kotler's book, somebody gave it to me and I read it and I go, Oh, I know exactly what he's talking about because, and I'm always searching for the place where I can get into that flow, where I can uh, enter that flow state. Um, So when you're playing at a high level in elite athlete, as an elite athlete, you get to enter that, you know, every once a week at least because of the game schedules. And um, there's no way you can survive out there for any length of time if you don't go into that flow state. Um, The only place I could duplicate it that I have found that I can duplicate it, Dave, that feeling, that zone, is to be on stage, (laughs) <laughs> it, 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 yeah yeah and and al pacino you know became my mentor many years ago and he told me one thing i'll never forget it and this is this really captures that flow state he said i wish that the stage was a tightrope so that only the brave would enter and wow. if you're and if you're going to be a great tightroper or you know an extreme athlete of any kind um that's life and death. So you've got to enter that zone or you're dead, <clears throat> you know, it, and that and the NFL is a lot like that also. It's amazing uh, that you say that when you go on stage, it, it's the same thing. Uh, when I started public speaking, I was absolutely terrified yeah. and I was I know, some or some of my early 20s and I think it was that terror, but I'd go up there and I would kick ass on stage. You know, my, my first big speech to like, I don't know, 500 plus people, uh, people were laughing. I, I got you know standing ovation. Uh, I was talking about some technology, early internet thing. Like, I think like the rise of the web or something. And, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I don't even know what I said. Like literally people told me what I said afterwards because I was so scared that I just went into this altered state and I just, I, I nailed it. And I ended yeah. up getting invited to do a lot of other speaking about technology because of that. And now there's zero fear, but I still go into a flow state. When I get on stage, unless something's really messed with my biology, like I, you know, uh, four days without sleep or something, I'm going to yeah. go up there and, and something snaps. And then you just have all this energy to bring. But being on stage certainly is one of the things that induces a flow state for me, too. And, and what about when you're writing a play? Like, like yeah. when you're actually doing that, do you go into flow from writing or just from performing or being on the field? Uh, well, I write in a very peculiar way. So I write standing up and I write on the move. So I'm usually running or on a stationary bike. Oh, you run on uh, a treadmill when you write or? Yeah, or just running, uh, uh, you know, on the grass, like in Santa Monica area or on the beach. With a and pen? Or like- no, no. I'm totally like mouthing the whole thing. And then when I get back to my truck, I start writing down uh, what, I, what came up when I was on that run. So Run to the Litter, I actually wrote while training for a marathon. So, wow. And I, it's, what's funny about it, I never ran the marathon. But the, <laughs> but the training, <laughs> the training, I totally... You know, you know, like when you get in those states where you're so exhausted, you can't go on, you think you're going to die. So all of a sudden, your body just kind of surrenders. And all of a sudden, these great terms coming out of your mouth and coming into your head. And then I just started to capture them and capture them and capture them for this. It was about a six-month period of this training that I went through. And then I went in a Borders bookstore for two years, uh, for three hours a day. And I sat there, and it's in West Hollywood, and I'd never written anything in my life, never actually written anything. Um, so I wrote this whole play longhand while sitting in the religious book area. You know, the, wow. like, and I've never been trained at any kind of religion that I did, I wasn't brought up that way, you know? Um, but I've always had a sense of, you know, something bigger than me. And I'm always arguing with somebody who I call God, you know what I mean? And I usually lose those arguments, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And I sat in this religious book area of Borders Books and they gave you, if you bought a coffee, Dave, they gave you three hours of free parking in West Hollywood. So that was my writing schedule. That was a cheap parking spot, actually. Right? For LA, it was really cheap. So, um, 
I bought a coffee every morning, sat there for three hours. Some days I didn't even write. I just sat there. Uh, but the other days I let that sucker go. And then after two years, I handed it to my wife. I go, look, this is a play. And she goes, a play? Who's going to want to see a play that I'm the only one in? I said, I don't know. Go out, start raising some money, and let's put this baby up. And that was, you know, that was 1998. I started writing that thing, and I haven't stopped performing it since. So it's almost, you know, what, a 16, 7, yeah, 16, 16 years. What did it feel like the first time you, you actually you were on stage performing a play that you wrote? What'd that do to you? It was a nightmare. I mean, I was, my heart, I, I was, I never been so scared. And I, you know, I've been up against some big boys in my life, you know, some, <laughs> some dangerous people. <laughs> and I, it, and you're afraid, you know, you're scared, but you throw your head in there anyway. Um, but this is a lot worse fear. Facing, you know, your peers and the New York critics and, you know, people who are going to judge and, and make remarks on you because you're the, I'm the one who wrote it. I'm the only one who performs it and never been so petrified. And um, somehow, some way, I entered that state, the one that you just talked about, that zone. And I don't remember much of it other than looking at people and connecting to people. And all of a sudden, it was over, and they responded to it. You know, people responded to it because, I, you know, I feel like I was flying by the seat of my pants, like I was just trying to survive up there. And I think when people, when an audience senses that, that's courage that they would pay top dollar to witness. You know, somebody on a high wire act right in front of you in real time with no net, there's something irresistible and intoxicating about that, that an audience goes, okay, we're not going anywhere. This is where we're staying. And that's the same state you just talked about the first time you spoke. I feel like when an audience senses that state and that, that level of focus and passion, they're all rooting for you. And if you go up there and you're fake, yeah. and, and, or maybe, maybe you're not in that state or you, something's not right, they feel it before they, they see it. Uh, and then they're not rooting for you because they, they feel like, I don't know, like they're cheated or like you're deceiving them. And I, I don't know how to give a good presentation without just bringing the authentic thing there because otherwise it, it doesn't work. Like you, you, I don't know how to say something I don't believe in and, and make the audience respond the way an audience should to a good quality talk. So it, yeah, it, it, you've, you've noticed that same thing. Like if you're in oh. that state, they're there for you. And if you're not there, they don't. So. No doubt. No doubt. And, you know, look, I have this, you know, theory that the people who are going to lead and the people, you know, especially from stage, because if you're if you have the ability to to be powerful in front of other people and have them co-create your message with you, co-create your story with you, those are the people who are going to lead. Those are true leaders, not like pretend leaders, not like fake leaders who are trying to manufacture and manipulate an audience. I'm talking about somebody who comes from who they are, yeah. from their experience, and you can tell the difference because like we've been talking about, that person on stage or that person in front of you, uh, in front of you is in free fall. They're very brave, that takes a lot of courage. You know, that's why everyone says, you know, the number one fear of people is speaking, public speaking. And the number two fear is death. So people would actually die, rather die, than be up there. And we're very interested as an audience, as a, as a species, of people who are courageous and are walking on a high wire. We can't get enough of it. So therefore, if you're really kind of slick on stage and comfortable and got all the right answers, that makes your audience feel a certain way. Like, oh, this guy's not the real deal. Is there something too perfect, too polished, too controlling, and they don't trust? And they might, their polite, audiences are polite, so they might let you get away with it. They might like go nod their head and uh, politely applaud, but they're not going anywhere with you. They're not going to help you build your, the thing you want to build. It's uh, it's very true, and I mean, I I think the first time we met, uh, you were giving a, a talk at Michael Fishman's uh, Consumer Health Summit. It, it's an invitation only 
a conference for leaders in the, the health and wellness field, like people who, who have achieved some level of influence to help people uh, basically solve some of the national health problems that we have and just to live better. So um, you and I were there and you gave this, this fantastic talk, but I, honestly, I mean, you had the whole place riveted, you got a standing ovation, uh, but you started out by talking about something that happened to you when you were a little kid. Um, do you remember that story? Can you, can you tell me what it was? Um, I think it, I'm trying to think of what story I opened with there. It may have been, um, was I talking about my son Axel and us I, playing catch? Uh, I, I think oh, so. I, I think that's what it was. Yeah, actually, no, I'm re- it's coming back to me now. You were talking about your son Axel and, and the, the people at his school. Yeah. And you don't have to talk about that if you don't want to. But. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. It's fine. It's, it's fine. I was just, we have a, we have a rule, you know, in our house. And the rule is, you know, we don't let the ball touch the ground. So when we play catch with a football, when Axel and I or the girls, my two daughters, Lila and Eloise, we play catch. We have a rule. And the rule is we don't let the ball touch the ground. The ball does not touch the ground. So we, at that, that particular story you're talking about, I, I was at a, uh, a fancy birthday party for, of five-year-olds. And Axel, I think, was three at the time. And he and I were playing catch. And with this little football in this backyard, and there was like all these entertainment agents and all these entertainment lawyers in this backyard, and Axel and I are playing catch, and Axel dropped the ball. And I go, Axel, don't let the ball touch the ground. And he goes, oh, yeah, Dad. So he picks it back up, and we start playing catch again. Well, that upset some of these guys, and they came over and had a little chat with me about how to speak to my son. And they asked me, you know, what did you say to that boy? And I said, well... I said to that boy, who's my son, I told him, don't let the ball touch the ground. And the guy was upset that I said that. And he said, why would you say that to that boy? And I said, I say that to my boy because that's a rule in our house. We don't let the ball touch the ground. And he got more upset. And he said, well, why would that be a rule in your house? Like that was the most offensive thing ever. And I said, that's a rule in my house because when I was growing up, that was a rule in our house <clears throat> because my dad got us a football every Christmas and me and my brother, my brother would throw it to me 1,000 times every day and I would catch it 1,000 times every day for the whole year. So that ball, if it touched the ground, was not going to last until the next Christmas and we weren't getting a new ball if that ball was ruined. So we had to make it last for a year and we figured that if you're, if you're going to catch and throw a ball a thousand times a day, if it never touches the ground, it's going to make it to Christmas. So we dedicated our lives to it. Uh, that's why it's a rule in my house. That's what I told this dude. And the guy goes, he was all smug, and he goes, so how did that work out for you? <laughs> and I was so happy that he asked that question because I said, well, uh, you know, worked out pretty good. My brother and I both played in the NFL. And he walked away. He was, <laughs> anyway, the point of the story was, was I'm just not comfortable with my life in the hands of amateurs who have reduced themselves to mediocrity. And, and, they, and they believe that that's as high as you can reach. And so I took all my kids, Eloise and Axel, uh, Lila wasn't born yet, and my wife out of that birthday party went out into the car and we drove home. And I told, I announced to the family that we are now moving. <laughs> <laughs> and we moved to an area of town where it's more accepting to, uh, you know, to honor excellence and to not let the ball touch the ground. But, you know, the reality is my kids let the ball touch the ground more than any other kid in the neighborhood because they're they're attempting to throw and catch more than any other kid in the neighborhood. Yeah. So it's, it's all, it's an effort. It's a quest that we have. It's not necessarily, it never touches the ground. But funny enough, I would equate my success in marriage, in parenting, in writing or speaking or NFL, I would equate that to that kind of dedication, to that kind of work ethic. And I'm not... I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm saying that's the quest. And I, I think that kind of commitment that my, that my kids are learning now will pay off in their 40s, will pay off in their 50s when the shit hits the fan and things aren't going good and they're going to be able to just hang in there. You know what I mean? With that kind of work ethic. You're, you're basically 
instilling resilience at, at a very deep level so that you know, they understand they work hard and things work and sometimes you drop the ball, but you're not supposed to drop the ball and you're going to pick it up again and maybe do a little bit better next time. And, and building resilience in children or adults is, is not well studied, uh, yeah. not, at least not well enough studied. And it's one of the most important things you can do because it, at least for me, the whole point of you know, the bulletproof state of high performance, it, no one's indestructible. I mean, you park a cement truck on you, it's going to hurt. Yeah. Uh, but if you're resilient, you might survive and you might, you know, grow new legs or whatever it's going to take in order to, to do what you're going to do anyway. And it's, it's that, you know, you can't stop me uh, perspective that when you, when you get that into you somehow, you can't be stopped. And, and it's, hard, it's hard to know all the things that make it happen. But you strike me as, as a guy who's, who's got it. Right. It's, it's fascinating um, to be able to have the opportunity to interview a bunch of people who have that. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to do it kind yeah. of perspective. Yeah. You've, though, maybe made a process out of what you do more than, than the average person. And you focused on sharing your personal story as, as part of what you teach people to do. Uh-huh. And you were also kind enough to talk about the three most important things that people can master to share their own story. And I think people listening to the Bulletproof Radio podcast would really appreciate and maybe value that because sharing your personal story is useful, whether it's something you're doing at work, something you're doing at home with your kids or something you're doing in front of you know, 10,000 people in, in a big stadium or something. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a skill that helps everyone. And what are those three things? Yeah, the, well, the three most critical steps that I always teach the people that I work with about their personal story. First of all, your personal story, that is, uh, that my belief is that is the most valuable thing that you've got. That is the one thing that distinguishes you from everybody else on this planet, either before you or after you. You know, you just that's not to be repeated. The miles that you've already run, and I always say to people, I go, look, You've lived this life. You've attempted to master this life. So however old you are, I'm 53. um, I've spent 53 years trying to be the best at whatever occupation, whatever dream I have chosen. That's very specific to me. That story, I can take that anywhere. I can start any speech with it. I can start a podcast with it. I can start a, a toast with it. I could start a prayer session with it. There is no place I can't go. If I ran for president, I would lead with that story so that people would be would know exactly who they're dealing with. They, that story would reveal the character that I am, and there would be no mistake in, uh, to the constituency. The, the three most critical steps of your story are this. Number one, personal. It's got to be personal. Most of us have been taught to not, you know, we're raised in, a, in, a, in a, a time where it's not cool. Your parents said, hey, don't brag about yourself. Don't yeah. talk about yourself, which I totally get. But that's not what I'm talking about, about your personal story. I'm talking about you sharing yourself. And it's usually a defining moment in your life that pretty much defined who you were for the rest of your days. Like, I, I guarantee you in your life, Dave, and in my life, there's a moment between the ages of 9 and 12, that we decided to be something. We decided to right some wrong. And I guarantee you, at the age of 53, I'm still trying to right the wrong. My life is defined by that moment. Now, for me, that moment was being cut from Little League uh, at nine years old. <laughs> so I'm, st- I, you know what? I'm still trying to, uh, they cut me from Little League and I didn't leave. I stayed. I just kept going to practice. And they kept going, you're not on the team. I said, I'm just going to practice. And they said, no, no, you're not on the team. I said, no, no, I'm just going to hang out. Uh, No, no, we sent you home. No, no, I'm just going to be over here. But that's been the story of my life. That's a theme throughout my life. Now, you may get sick of me now and go, Bo, I'd really, you know, I'd like to break up this friendship and stop the podcast. But I won't go away. I'll be here somewhere. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I don't stop. That's a theme in my life. You have something so similar to me, and all of us do. We have that defining moment that says who we are for the rest of our lives. It defines our character. That is the best connective tissue that you have. So I was over in London. I was training the top 100 financial advisors in all of Europe, and they brought them into London. They also brought in this guy from a company called Oxford Analytica. 
And Oxford Analytica has 200 think tanks throughout the world, and they come up with threats and, and where the markets are going and, and all these kinds of things. In fact, our president gets Oxford Analytica briefings on his desk every morning. So this guy's speaking. He owns his company, and he's speaking uh, on behalf of them. After I got done talking about the, your personal story being the key to the kingdom for these financial advisors, he comes up to me afterwards. He goes, Bo, do you know you're right about what you said about these people's personal story being the golden goose for them? I said, oh, good. I'm glad I'm right because I've kind of dedicated my life to this. And he goes, he goes not only are you right, I'm going to send you the analytics to back you up. So, Dave, check this out. They've done a study from Julius Caesar, so the middle of the Roman Empire, to 2012. And all leaders in between those two times, and not just political leaders, they had Lady Gaga was somebody they really studied. Osama bin Laden, of all people, was somebody they really studied. They want to know why people follow these leaders. What is it? And they come up with three characteristics that all these leaders from Julius Caesar to now have in common. And guess what number one is? Guess what the number one ability is? The ability, you have to have the ability to tell your own story. And that is the connective tissue that people latch onto you. Now think about your company. Think about Bulletproof. It's a story that I heard that I connected to. I didn't know you. I knew your story. Cool, right? I didn't even know your name. I knew your story. And I wanted to be a part of the story. And so I became a part of it. And I never, I didn't meet you for eight months after I became a part of the story. Uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and pointing that out, I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but I started my blog and put some of the story in the blog. And then uh, someone who became actually a, a very good friend, uh, my friend Alexis, uh, Twittered me at, at the time, and, or sorry, tweeted me. I guess that's what all the cool people say. But I, I, I try to stay out of the Twitter culture, even though I use Twitter all the time. I, I just, I don't want to like use the lingo because then I'm, I don't know, whatever. Call me a tech elitist. But I was tweeting, and she said, "Come talk at this conference." It turns out it was the Bill Conference, which is like Ted's little brother. So it happens alongside the TED Conference, but it's kind of for a younger crowd who isn't going to you know, drop eight thousand dollars to go to, to to TED, but still you know, wants to share. So I, I went up and I didn't know what to say at this conference, but uh, I was honored to be invited to speak like the first time to speak about something besides like computer security, something boring. So I put together like some photos and I just told my story, right? It was exactly my story. And I just yeah. laid it out the way it happened. And just like you're, just like you're saying, the audience was, was literally mesmerized. And I got like twice the amount of time I was supposed to have for speaking. I'm sorry, whoever was after me. Um, but <laughs> it was, you could just tell, like I connected with the audience there, and it was it was that talk really that started a lot of the just the passion for bulletproof on because it helped me see the story and to tell the story well. And the response from the audience, some of them became good friends and, and supporters and all this. So to this day, people say, "Well, how did you grow bulletproof?" And the the answer is, I, I got on airplanes and I flew to places where people wanted to hear the story, and I told the story. Yep. Uh, it wasn't that I you know, bought some SEO keywords and I, right. you know, Facebooked my way to this and that. Um, right. Those are small scale tactics. It's the story, just like you're saying, it's the story. And it, and you have, everyone has their story. Uh, and if you can't tell it, it's like you're walking around blindfolded. No, no. And people, most of us are just reluctant to tell it because, well, I don't want, they, everyone always says, well, I don't want to talk about myself. Look, you're talking about the the, the journey that you've been on. So that people have an ability now to connect with you and be with you and, and then help you build whatever it is you want to build. And in this case, you know, your company. In this case, my company. The more personal, the more universal your story becomes. The more personal. So dates, details, smells, tastes, the more personal the more effective the story is. That's why people connect so, you know, that, that, like Steve Jobs was so good at this. He, you know, I, I think when Apple lost him, they lost their storyteller, you know, and he told such a good story and you wanted to be a part of it. And, and, and same thing that you do. I, I didn't know who you were. I knew your story. Your story preceded you. Somebody told me your story. I wanted to be a part of it. I, I saw I went on the website. I became part of the story. I started drinking the coffee. 
And then my whole family's involved. Then everybody I work with is now involved <laughs> with Bulletproof Coffee Thanks, because man. I make them drink it. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so and, and you're nice enough to, like, you know, bring the, the, your great-looking staff and have them have that barista right there and making the coffee. And my clients go nuts for it. And now they're a part of your story. It's your story. It's not your story is key. And it's so personal. It's that's what people connect to. That's why if you look at the corporate world, if they don't start attaching human molecules to their corporations, they're on a sinking ship. And so they're scrambling right now to connect humanity and personal stuff to their companies. Otherwise, people will leave them. People won't work with them. It must be really hard to feel like Monsanto or someone. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> but uh, so th- there's a, a flip side to, to the personal story. So in the last couple of days, Slate uh, ran an article about Bulletproof Coffee. Thank you, Slate. That's awesome. Uh, appreciate it. Now, the reporter, though, took whatever plain coffee they found and like put whatever non-grassed butter, layered a slick of it on top, drank it, and said, this is actually disgusting. And then proceeded to go to my website instead of the other way around and then called me a megalomaniac. So yes. what do you do when people say, Bo, everything's about you? Because honestly, it's not about me from the way I see the world. But, but, and I know you, and I know that when you're doing your art and your craft, it's not about you either. But right. people, some people anyway, will, will see it that way. How do you respond to those people? Uh, this is how I respond to them. I t- the, everybody that I work with, I say this to them. If these words ever come out of somebody's mouth, hey, it's not about me. If somebody says that, <laughs> I tell my friends to run. Didn't I just say that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you Shit. use it as an example. <laughs> but, you know. It, 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 but listen, Dave, who, who introduces a concept, like this writer, mm-hmm. you know, for Slate, he introduces a concept that nobody's thinking about. Yeah. Except him. Because typically writers, you know, look, there's players like we're players, we want to be on the field. We want to play. And then there's people who report about the players, who try to tell the story of the player. That's a two different makeups of people. Those people who sit on the sideline a hundred miles from the battlefield always have an opinion about the warrior, don't they? Yeah. And they always say, it's all about me. It's, it's not all about Dave. It's all about Bo. It's a, they're the, you know why? Because they can't get that out of their mind. They're so afraid to play and participate in a way that we want to participate, that they sit in the safe zone, which we're not interested in, and they comment on how the strong man stumbled or how the doer of good deeds should have done better. That's what they do. I don't even include those people. I don't include them. If anybody brings up, hey, if I see a speaker on stage go like this, hi, everybody, uh, my name's Bo, and I'm going to give you a little speech here, and let me just tell you, it's not about me. I am going to run for the exits if somebody does that. Because who's introducing a concept that no one's thinking about? I'm talking about sharing yourself, the most generous act in the world, to be able to share yourself with another human being and in real time, just like you and me are doing right now, co-creating benefits for for people in real time right now. Now, are we going like this? Oh God, I hope I look good on camera. I hope my hair's okay. And (laughs) we're not doing that shit. We're trying to make a difference in people's lives. That's what people want. There's a difference and it's recognizable like this. So anybody who brings up, hey, it's not about me, get out of there. It is all about them. They're a narcissist. We are not narcissists. That's not how we operate. If we were, we'd be going, oh, my God, Bo, let me just talk about myself a little bit more. Let me do this. It's not how it goes. It's not attractive and it's not inspiring. And I don't know what those people are talking about. Amen. Uh, When I interview people, I I listen for that because – there's a certain trait that we have where we'll make things that are not about us about us. So if someone says, you know, let, let me tell you about my, I, 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 even if what they're talking about has nothing to do with them. Yeah. It's a problem. And when I work on, on my writing, I, I actually go through my writing quite a bit 
on the blog. And uh, sometimes I work with researchers and, and content people in order to help organize it. But I always go through and the comments are exactly the same. I, uh, whoever I'm working with on the editorial process, I'll say, why is it full of all these statements about I this, I this, I this? And even in the Bulletproof Diet book, uh, quick plug, bulletproofdietbook.com, please order it. <laughs> Bulletproofdietbook.com. Did I say that? Anyway, uh, in that book, working with the, the editors, they insisted on having more I because of the power of the story. Yep. And I'm like, look, it's a, it's got my name on the cover. It's about me. It's my words, right? Yep. So maybe my mistake is to not use that so much because it, it's that's not the subject of it, right? It's the subject of what do you do so you can kick more ass. And it's it's a funny thing, but when you're talking with someone in person, just like you're saying, and they let me tell you about me, it's not about me, that is a turnoff. And yep. it, it means that the way you see the world is colored with more ego than you think is, is there. And those are the people who are hard to work with. Oh, yeah. And who brings up ego? And who brings up it's not about me? Just think about who brings that stuff up? People that are thinking about it. That, you and me, we haven't brought that up only because we're not thinking about it. We, yeah. Now, the writer introduced it and try to take shots at you, right? Because what else is he going to do? You know, he doesn't follow the instructions, right? If he, yeah. if he follows the recipe, you know? It, it's it's kind of cool, though. I didn't realize we'd go here when we were talking about this, but the how to deal with criticism in business or heck, in, in a family situation, it, it's always the same thing. Like, like there's a certain way that you are programmed to respond to criticism. And it, it oftentimes comes from things as small as, you know, we, we don't let the ball touch the ground. And the way you were told that can program your whole biology, not your conscious brain, but like your, your fight or flight response, right? So there's kind of three podcasts uh, that, that really stand out where we've talked about that. There's you, uh, there's Peter Sage uh, and Tim Ferriss, where each of you has a different perspective on how to deal with critics and criticism. Yeah, uh, and uh, it, it's actually really helpful uh, as bulletproof grows. People, for reasons I don't even understand, uh, people yeah. I've never spoken to are like, you know, wow, I didn't know I was the Antichrist. Uh, but it's really interesting to watch my own response to the criticism, and then to learn from others who've dealt with the same kind of thing about yep. not only like what works uh, from an internal perspective, but works from an external perspective on dealing yep. with that. So what I'm oh, yeah. what I'm doing with is I'm like, hey, here's a here's a bag of the real coffee beans and a bottle of brain octane <laughs> oil and a, and a recipe card, and like, <laughs> you know, I'd be happy to help you out, and I'll it's just here, try it. You don't have to write yeah. about it, and we'll see yeah. what happens. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but like at least blend it, please. <laughs> yep. And, you know, look, this thing is exploding, you know, from what I can see. I mean, look, I walk around L.A. and I see it, you know, and I go to the my barista thing over here at the uh, Air One market by where I live. And they got bulletproof right there. And I, I tell the dude behind the thing, I go, will you make me a bulletproof coffee? He goes, heck, yeah. I go, is it popular here? He goes, heck, yeah. I go, do you know I had dinner with Dave Asbury the other day? <laughs> he was like, no shit, really? He was like all fired up. He, he's been pouring your coffee, d- never met you, but he knows your story. I, and I go in there. I, next time I'll say hi. I'm in there. Yeah. In LA, I don't freak, by, don't but, faint. Yeah. Don't faint. They'll think you're Elvis Presley. <laughs> <laughs> but look, if that's going to happen, which that's going to happen, and that's happening now, the opposite is also going to happen. And, you know, I love the, the Theodore Roosevelt quote. It's, it's my favorite. It's, it, the critic does not count. It's the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Those are the ones who count. And those are the only ones who count. So you're going to get some arrows for sure, right? You're already getting them. Uh, I would encourage you to invite, invite them in because they're coming anyway. Oh, yeah. And, you know, invite them in and go, okay. Because, look, if you're a true leader, I mean a true leader, that opposition's coming. They're coming for you. Oh, yeah. It's you a know? sign of success. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you just you just keep being you. You keep telling the story. And, you know, look, I mean, I know how I came to know you. And I know how I came to know the story and got involved. And then got to know you, like, totally secondary. I remember when you walked into that dinner and I go... You, somebody goes, that's Dave Asprey. Because I had never really seen your face. And I had been drinking your coffee for like eight months. And you sit and you sit right next to me. And I go, dude, I just turn to you. I go, dude, I've been drinking your coffee for eight months, man. It's a pleasure to meet you. And you go, I like you already. <laughs> <laughs> 
and 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 so that's how it goes. A look, I love it. My kids love it. Like my kid, my my one daughter Eloise, she's ten. Every time she goes, "Dad, is that bulletproof?" I go, "Oh yeah," and she goes, "Dad, who would want to shoot your coffee?" <laughs> and that's our little thing we do every morning. And when I drink my coffee, they go, "Dad, is that bulletproof?" I go, "Oh yeah." So you're already a part of this consciousness. Their story is a part of this consciousness of little kids who are five, seven, and 10, who are always looking to be the best in the world at what they do. That's how they're trained, to be the yeah. best in the world at their occupation. Not second. It's, it's true, Bo. I, you have five, seven, and 10. My kids are five and seven. See that that flashing blue machine back yeah. there? Uh, that's a a bar game from the '80s. You put a quarter in, and it lets you test your your working memory. So it it beeps and it shows you what color, and you press the the buttons in the same order, like an old my Simon. So my five year old son has tromped on me. He's kicked my ass. Like he's tripled my top score. And we, I had a Brandon Routh who played Superman in in one of the big Superman movies. He's a character on Arrow for this season, uh, The Atom. Um, he came up uh, to hang out for a weekend. And so literally, like, Superman's in the house. Alan walks up, and, and you know, Brandon plays his first game. Alan walks up and goes, I can beat that easily. <laughs> That's your five-year-old? <laughs> oh, my God. But it, just, just what you're saying. I was like, I, did that just happen? Like, 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 you know, Brandon's the coolest guy ever. Uh, and, and just to see little Alan, like, I could beat that. But it, that's that drive you're talking about, right? It, it's yep. just, it's in them. And, and that's what you do. Yep. Uh, so uh, it, I, I imagine by the time we get your podcast up, the podcast with Brandon that we recorded up here will be up as well. Um, so I hope the order comes out right. But it, it, it's that thing where, you know, kids just have to do it. And something in life takes it out of them. I don't know if it's school or, you know, en enough things. But but my job as a parent, and it sounds like your job, the way you're, you're raising your family, is to keep that in them and keep as much of it as you can for as long as you can. And when they learn that long enough, they'll learn how to take their licks and get back up and keep doing, you know, keep being who they are and keep doing that stuff. And yeah. that's one of the most important things I can do uh, at all is to teach my kids that I could beat that easily. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it's great. Well, we're coming up on, on the end of the show. And there's a question that uh, I think we actually talked about this at dinner once, but uh, maybe not so formally. And this, what are your top three recommendations for people who want to kick ass at life? So you want to perform better at whatever it is you do, whether it's writing things or running around uh, as a pro athlete. It, it, it doesn't have to be from either of those domains. Mm -hmm. What pieces of advice do you have for people? Mm. You know what I, I always teach my kids and I always teach my clients is – I need for you to be great, for me to get the best out of you, like for you to be the top in your field, I need access to your raw animal instincts. I want access to your true nature, that primitive side of you, that primal side. Once I have access to that, I, there's no stop, there would be no stopping you. Um, you know, we should live in a culture and a society that really frowns upon that. And, you know, in, in, the, in the training that I do, a lot of it, um, um, the promise that I make, the people that I work with, is that no one will have the ability to look away from you. If, you. if you implement exactly what I tell you to implement and say and do, people don't have the ability to look away. Because um, imagine a cheetah or a leopard or a lion on a stage. You just don't have the ability to look away from that if you're anywhere near it. You can't look away. Well, those are predators that I just mentioned. So are we. And we're the most lethal predator that, that's ever been created. And I, I call it noble predator because I, I, predators are trustworthy. You know, not the way our news explains predators. You know, they've given this moniker to the worst of our society. So now we think this word predator is supposed to be a bad thing. When in actuality, it's the most natural thing. It is the most trustworthy and noble um, being on the planet. And that's who we are. And until we can get really close, intimate relationship with our true uh, disposition, our natural ethos, there's, you're limited. You're limited on if you can be the best in the world at what you want to be. Now, whether that's an Olympic athlete or a singer or a speaker or a business person or the, a saxophone player, it doesn't matter. I have to have access. You, more importantly, you have to have access 
to that raw animal natural instinct. And once we get that, once we get that square and like you start to surrender to who you already are, like we're not making something up here. We're not trying to create something. It's already there. We're just going to surrender to it and allow it to percolate, allow it to uh, reveal itself. That's where all the true power lies, you know? It's just like you and me, Dave, if we, if you and me decided, hey, hey, Dave, let's go build a beach house out in Malibu right on the ocean, right? And that might be something we might want to think about because <laughs> um, it does sound like a good idea. Um, so eventually, and we can build like a gazillion dollar home that, that, you know, is like, you know, indestructible and beautiful and everyone would love visiting but eventually, we're going to lose that battle, aren't we? Eventually, Mother Nature is going to win that one. She's going to take that house. So we're just borrowing that space for the time. I think the people who are, who are more in touch with that nature, their true nature, the, those are the ones who are going to be the true leaders, the pure leaders, the ones that I'm waiting, to arri- uh, waiting for them to arrive and starting to create them for myself. That is huge. And... If you and I right now thought, if we just, and everyone who's listening thought right now of what are the occupations that we cannot look away from? What are they? I know the ones for me that I just have trouble looking away from. Like if Mikhail Baryshnikov does a ballet, you're going to have a tough time looking away from that. Uh, A predator animal, whether it's a killer whale or a shark or a falcon or a cheetah running for an antelope. I can't look away from that. Uh, an elite athlete at the highest level, running either a sprint or dunking a basketball or hitting a home run. A Navy SEAL charging a beachhead with oncoming fire. Can't look away. Are you and me any different than those occupations? We're, those are life and death circumstances, but why, is, why don't we play with those stakes? Why don't we raise the stakes like Al Pacino said and have each stage and each place we enter be a tightrope? so that only the brave could enter. I just, that's the world that I envision, and that's the world that I am building, because that's the world I want to be led by, and I want to lead that kind of people. So it's always those occupations that have to be very close to their own nature, that that you can't look away from. I think that's important for you and me. Okay, there's one. You got two more. I got two more. I, I, I handled everything in that one thing. <laughs> now, what, now, so, the, okay, the so. Three, three most important things in, in, uh, for, for basically being a high-performance yeah. human. And yeah, yeah. you basically said access your, uh, your primal nature, like understand who you are there. And uh, that's I, I love that one. And no one's actually said it uh, so eloquently on the podcast before. Um, are there two other big things that that people just that, that that you've found to be essential in being able to just bring it? Yeah, there's there there's a couple more. One is um, practice, you know, and you know most people when you say the word practice, they think of eating their vegetables, you know, the drudgery of that. And what I have found, like for the highest performers that I've ever been around, and I've been around like the best elites in in every performance uh, uh, venue, whether it's dance or, or athletics or performing on stage or uh, music. I've been around them, and I noticed that the very top, the very, very peak, all do the same thing. They all live by the same kind of code, and that is practice or rehearsal, if you will, is the center of their universe. Most people want the game, the big game, to be the center of their universe. The greats, the greatest people at games, at performance, those people practice five times more alone than anybody else. And not only do they do it, they love it. And, and they don't love it every day. Like they, they have that certain drudgery or that anxiety about having to come through for themselves again and again, but they do it. It turns into a habit and they just, they're really unstoppable and they're unmatched and there's no way you and I can catch them if they're ahead of us because they're going to keep doing, even if we, if we double our output, 
they're going to still keep going and they've got years on us. So that's how I train my kids. I go, look, every other kid is interested in the big game. They want to do well in the game. They want to be great when they're seven. I'm not interested in seven. I'm interested in 27. Who are you going to be then? If we run the miles now at seven, who are you going to be at 27? If you practice, if you rehearse, whatever the specific discipline that we're, you know, whatever the dream is, whatever the job is, practice, key, you know. Lovely. Yeah. So one more uh, relatively short one, and then I have a final question for you. Okay. The, the final one would be a plan. I've always, I've had th- th- four dreams in my life and they're always, they're 20 year plans is what I put together. Sometimes they overlap. Um, what I always do, and I do it every time is I draw, you've seen one of them that you saw the one I made when I was nine. So it's school paper and I draw who I want to be in 20 years. And then I write that I want to be the best in the world at this specific discipline in the world. And I draw the plan and I hold that plan until it comes into existence. So now in my 40s and 50s, I've graduated to these books like, you know, like a book like this, like a sketchbook. And I still do the same thing. I sketch, I draw who I want to be, what influence I want to have, um, the difference I want to make. And I, 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 it's, it's like a declaration of independence for me. And what I do is I live out of that declaration until it lives in the real world. And these are pretty far-fetched. I mean, some of them are really out there, you know? But those are the ones that are easier to come, they, they come true because, you know, the universe and your brain capacity, everything starts working for you. And now these things come into existence rather quickly. Not, it doesn't take 20 years anymore. Now they happen like in four or five years when I used to take me 20 to make them come into existence. So a plan is uh, that declaration, and I hold that declaration close to my heart, and I tell everybody that I know my declaration so they can help me bring it into existence. I think that's really key. Wow, those are are some some heavy and very powerful recommendations. We're up on the end of the show, uh, but in addition to seeing your play Runt of the Litter, uh, people can work with you directly as uh, basically a, a storytelling public presence coach. And uh, you've written some, some pretty fascinating stuff. Where can people go to connect more with you, Bo? My website is boeason.com. So it's B-O-E-A-S-O-N.com, boeason.com. I have uh, two events a year that I do called Personal Story Power Event. And I do them in La Jolla, California. And I do them in a, uh, a Broadway-style theater. Because I want people to get the feeling when they're on stage of how to paint a room that vacuous and that huge with their humanity, with their predatory instincts, with their story. Because once they do that, every room they enter for the rest of their life will pale in comparison. And I bring in my movement guy, a guy named Jean-Louis Rodrigue, and the team that created Run to the Litter. I bring them in to this theater to work on all my clients so that they basically turn their lives into a one-person show. No different than you, Dave. You're like this. You're a one-person show. No one sees the whole team behind the scenes, but that's the same as a Broadway show. There's one person on stage, and there's 100 people pulling the strings. But you're the voice. You're the brand. Same with everybody who's listening on here. They're the, fa- they're the voice. They're the face. They're the brand of their company. That is a one-person uh, tour de force that they've got to be able to express their vision, their story, so that people can follow them, so people can help them build their dreams. Uh, that's really my expertise, and that's my team's expertise. That's what we do for people in La Jolla. So if you go to boeason.com, I would love to have you um, – you know, obviously come work with me and the team and, uh, and uh, we'll get the, the most valuable asset that you've got. We'll get that thing attached to your molecule so it's out in the real world communicating at all times. Bo, thanks, thanks for being on the show. You're welcome. It's fun. If you enjoyed the show and you got some value out of it, I'd appreciate it. This is after 150 or so shows like this. Without any advertising or anything else, if you could this one time, go to Amazon and pre-order the Bulletproof Diet book. I would 
personally appreciate it. I'll also send you a bunch of other stuff that you haven't seen before when you do it. Uh, this is the kind of work, the writing, that helps us support the show and keeping the show at the level of amazingness that this one just was. So, Bo, thanks again for being here. I can't wait to get to hang out in person again. Uh, admire your work, admire you, and, and it's really an honor to have you on the show. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Right back at you, and uh, I'll see you in Pasadena. Have you heard about our new Brain Octane Oil? It goes far beyond upgraded MCT or any other coconut product for creating maximum cognitive function. This is about 4% of what's in coconut oil. It's 18 times stronger than coconut oil, and it's what I put in my Bulletproof coffee every single day. I use upgraded coffee beans, brain octane oil. In my case, I can take two tablespoons of it, but a lot of people use much less than that. And I put a couple tablespoons of grass-fed butter in there, blend it, and have an amazing day. If you haven't felt the difference between upgraded MCT and brain octane oil, you owe it to yourself to give it a shot. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.